is all. Last time on The Spectator, we told you about Molly Zelko's mentor, Bill McCabe, an outspoken politician and the newspaper's owner. Together, they crusaded for decades against the syndicate-linked gambling rackets in Joliet. After McCabe was beaten and left for dead in 1948, Molly relentlessly used the newspaper as a tool to enact revenge on those responsible. By the time she disappeared in 1957, the Chicago Syndicate had grown in power and prestige, and under its new boss, Sam Giancana, had successfully incorporated labor unions into its financial arsenal. Giancana also made it clear he had a disdain for the Capone-era code of silence carried on by his predecessors, Paul Rica and Tony Accardo, which placed reporters largely off-limits, and could have protected Molly. From the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library, this is The Spectator. After bloody battles for local control of the gambling rackets throughout the 1930s and 40s, which were often tied to political offices, one man emerged firmly entrenched as the Chicago Outfit's representative in Joliet, and by consequence was a frequent and favorite target of the spectator under both McCabe and Molly. His name was Francis Curry, but he was known by another name. The Thin Man. Francis Frank, the thin man Curry, lived on Western Avenue uh, in Joliet, was uh, an ex-bootlegger, crime syndicate boss in Will County. Uh, He was pretty much the guy who supervised all the gambling rackets. The U.S. Justice Department listed him as one one of the 100 top hoodlums. uh, and he worked from a, a, a kind of a rundown warehouse uh, on North Des Plaines Avenue near near the uh, the river, and he uh, was the guy that ran the operation uh, and was very very connected uh, politically. In uh, 1948, and this would have been February of 48, he was subpoenaed before a federal grand jury. And this was a grand jury that was looking into paroles that had been granted to former Al Capone gang members, and they had been convicted of uh, shaking down the movie industry. And Curry testified two and a half hours. What was in that testimony, uh, I'm not too sure right now, but uh, this was two months before McCabe was beaten. News. Uh, there were also news reports at the time who would they, they clearly they openly identified Curry's as being connected to to the mob. Uh, they even said that he uh, operated Rika's uh, huge farm, 1,100 acres that he had in Kendall County, while Rika was in prison. Although Curry, who, who died in 1967 and buried in Joliet, the, on his death certificate, his his uh, occupation was listed as farmer. Uh, he's buried in Mount Olivet. The, the people that we talked to said that there were uh, uh, police, uh, local Joliet police uh, involved and connected to Curry. In fact, uh, they even reported the, his son. Uh, when he got married, uh, there were they, 
there were two police officers that were invited to the wedding, along with you know Tony Accardo, uh, who was a crime syndicate board chairman at the time. Um, so Curry, Curry was the guy. Francis Curry appears in our story in 1948. You'll remember this was the same year that Bill McCabe, Molly's mentor, was beaten and left for dead. It was also the same year that Curry testified on behalf of Paul, the waiter Rika, one of the heads of the Chicago outfit. With the revenue vacuum left by the repeal of Prohibition, the outfit searched for new revenues, gambling chief among them, as we've talked about. During this period, the Chicago mob also attempted, unsuccessfully, to shake down Hollywood movie studios, leaving the leadership of the Chicago outfit, including Rika, facing decade-long sentences in federal prison. No one quite knows how or why, but Curry's testimony before a federal parole board in 1948 secured the release of Rika, which undoubtedly secured Curry a huge favor in return. Here's our resident conspiracy theorist, Dennis Henrietta. Fran Curry's importance in this, uh, he ran the gambling in Will County. He went all the way east to Laporte's territory and all the way up to Aurora. He was protected. He was Paul Rika's guy. Paul Rika the real head of the Chicago mob from 43 on, had a farm. And Rika got caught up in a scandal extorting the movie industry and got sent to prison. While he's in prison, he needed somebody to oversee the farm, which was really a hideout meeting place. And Francis, who I think got his start maybe dealing poker up in Norwich under Paul Rika, got assigned the job, and in return, would get the business in Joliet. This is in the mid-40s. Now, unfortunately, the slap machine, pinball, jukebox concessions was owned at that time by the Kelly brothers. They had inherited it through a little job in the 30s by Judge Wilson, who was crooked as could be. So the Kellys have it, and Curry, in appreciation for taking care of Rika's farm, was given the Transamerica Company, the Morris building here, was going to be the racing form. They were going to compete with the daily racing form. Unfortunately, uh, Bell Telephone shut that down, you know, when they had 700 phones in one building. And surprisingly, right after that, there was a, a slew of accidents where Kelly, a couple of the Kellys got killed and the mayor got run off the road and the commissioners got shot and McCabe got beat up. And the next thing you know, Kelly's out, Curry's in. Taking care of the farm appears to have meant a bit more than an annual harvest, though certainly the term cash crop would have applied. In a 1948 Chicago Tribune investigation into the circumstances around the movie studio shakedown paroles, it was found that Rika, despite being in federal prison and soon to be quickly and quietly paroled, and invested nearly $100,000 in repairs and maintenance to rehabilitate his farm. That's over $1 million today. The article blamed the farm's expenses on its tenant, quote-unquote, mystery character Francis Curry of Joliet, who per the newspaper had allowed it to run down. In addition to his moniker as the Thin Man, a 1946 article identifies Slim Curry as a leader of a Chicago envoy to muscle in on the profitable horse racing books in Louisville, Kentucky. The Louisville chief of police stated Curry's party, quote, definitely have connections with Ralph Capone, brother of Scarface Al, end quote. Perhaps the most important trait about Francis Curry was that he notoriously did not like reporters. The Chicago Tribune stated that at the parole hearings, quote, 
His collar was over his chin. His hat was pulled over his eyes. He held a handkerchief over his mouth and nose. Photographers were wary. Curry is known as a camera smasher and lunged at several cameramen yesterday, but no one was hurt and no property damaged, end quote. The photo of a thin, dark-eyed Curry attempting to conceal his identity makes him look all that much more villainous. Another contemporary photo, one of only a handful of publicly available ones we were able to locate, shows Curry seated, serpent-like in his appearance. Just weeks after the parole hearings were concluded, Bill McCabe nearly met his death. The Spectator was extremely critical of Francis Curry and his role in what was going on. The story uh, that uh, people who worked with Molly uh, like to tell is that Molly had a standing order that uh, there'd be nothing in the paper positive dealing with the Curry family. And uh, Curry's wife, uh, obviously they had money and she was trying to uh, you know, be active in social circles in the community and uh, the Spectator had its society page and they would take pictures of these events that they would have and uh, Molly's standing order was that there would never ever be a picture of uh, Marion Curry, his wife, in the Spectator. And so the instruction to the photographer was uh, always when you're taking a picture and if she's in it, put her on the end. Now, the reason you put her on the uh, the lineup at the end is so that you can crop her out and slice her out of the photo and not run it in the paper. For our younger listeners, the society pages were how people showed off before social media. Lynn, who you'll remember, took over for Molly on the Spectator Society beat shortly after her disappearance, recounts an instance early in her employment where this policy was inadvertently put to the test when she covered a social event with photographer Bob McDonald. Well, Bob McDonald and I got the assignment to go to the Catholic Women's League. They were having a, a, a luncheon. And so um, I was to cover it, and Bob was taking pictures of all the pretty ladies and, and such. So I said, oh, those centerpieces on the tables are just beautiful. I'd like to talk with the person who made those, and we'll get a picture of her. Well... They brought her over, Mrs. Fran Curry. Oh my God. <laughs> hey Bob, we're in deep doodle here. But Mrs. Curry was a lovely lady, very nice. We interviewed her, Bob took her pictures. So now we're thanking everyone and we're on our way out and she comes up to us and she shakes my hand and she shakes Bob's hand and in his hand, she had placed a hundred dollar bill. Oh gosh. So, so Bob and I exit and he said, we are in, what, what are, we are in trouble. What are you going to do? Well, do we not print the picture? I don't want to make Mr. Curry angry, <laughs> angry. But anyway, Bob and I solved it. We went to lunch with the $100, and the rest of it we put in the collection box in the back of St. Mary's Carmelite Church. So we felt that we, we, did, we did our job. And I did run the picture. I sp spoke to Mr. Johnson, and I told him what had happened. I didn't tell him we got the $100. <laughs> but but um, I did tell him that, because I didn't want him to think we took a bribe. You know, that's bad, too, you know. But we felt better, Bob and I did, because we gave some back to the church. As our speakers have all explained, 
mob activity in Joliet was an open secret. Despite his criminal, sometimes violent, purported acts, Francis Curry and his family were as much a part of the fabric of the community as any prominent family. These humorous, sometimes bizarre interactions between competing factions border on gallows humor. As we put it earlier, the lines between business, politics, crime, and even polite society were much blurrier in this period. Mary Fran, uh, Francis Curry, their daughter, I went to school with, and their son, Robert Curry, Bob Curry, went to Joliet Catholic High, and they had guards. They had security with them. I remember we were, we, I was going over to Mary Fran's house. We were going to meet over there. So I was waiting for a call at home from my boyfriend who was, because I had just moved, I had moved from Indianapolis. So I was waiting for Tom to call me. So I, I thought, well, I better go because Mary Fran's waiting. So I pull in their driveway and I go out and um, I was explaining to her, I was waiting for Tom to call, but I, I left anyway. And she says, well, why don't you give him a call from here? And I said, it's long distance. Your dad will kill me. Not realizing. <laughs> it was one of those things where, like, right after you said it, you knew it, or like, oh, <laughs> right, crap. right, right, <laughs> what, right. What did right. I just say? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And they were pretty. They they were pretty funny about it because were they? Yeah, were they self aware? I mean, oh, the, yeah, okay. The kids were mm -hmm. uh, because Bob played Bob Curry played a a joke on everybody. I can't remember exactly the premise, but but. Um, he went upstairs and he told everybody something was happening, so everybody better sit down on the floor and stay away from the windows. So when he came downstairs, everybody was sitting on the floor and they were away from the windows. I mean, looking back on it now, it's kind of funny, but they were really nice people. I mean, really nice kids. Everybody knew Curry. Everybody knew what he did. Uh, everybody knew his role. Uh, again, adding to that fear factor and what was going on. And we were talking to uh, friends, family, uh, acquaintances, uh, anybody that might have any knowledge about The Spectator, Molly, or Bill McCabe, and Curry. Uh, and we talked to uh, some people who were um, young at the time and uh, had been to Curry's house, had uh, uh, been in his car. And the image that they always gave was, well, it's, you know, it's Frank Curry, you know, you know the guy. Uh, so were you afraid or were you not afraid? Uh, but they weren't and as kids. Uh, and they kind of described him as, as is depicted in the movies. You know, the mob was generous. Um, uh, the, uh, he, was, he was generous. He was family-oriented, uh, good, good with kids. Uh, he liked to frequent a hotel downtown. I think it was called Louis Joliet Hotel. And, uh, in fact, it might have been near here. We talked to uh, one woman, uh, told us that uh, she worked there. Uh, again, she was anonymous, uh, but she said that, uh, you know, Curry was a fantastic tipper, great tipper, you know, um, kind of flashy. So I, actually what you end up hearing uh, is kind of the typical, almost stereotypical image of the mob boss who's got the money in the pocket rolled up and uh, has the power and people are afraid of him. Uh, but he takes care of people that help him. He takes care of people that are on his side. I'm just a bad boy. Oh, Mr. In fancy clothes, I ain't taking 
Following McCabe's beating, Molly intensified the spectator's mission to attack gambling rackets, which Curry personified. Even period newspapers pointed to his involvement in the face of the official motive of robbery. Molly went well above the norms of investigative journalism in attacking the Curry family, and in the process became obsessed with vengeance against the man whom she blamed for the attack on her mentor. There are stories about Molly uh, whenever there was a large event at the Curry home. She would drive by and write down all the license plate numbers. Um, and uh, she wasn't afraid. Uh, there was this huge fear factor surrounding everything in the community, but she wasn't afraid. Although I think towards the end, maybe she uh, did have some issues. Uh, and there were moments that she was afraid. And she told her family about this. Uh, you know, I think of being followed. Uh, she, she did get threats. Um, there was vandalism at the newspaper, which, you know, wasn't shocking. Um, uh, so, uh, but it, it did, she didn't stop. She never stopped. The newspaper never stopped uh, uh, attacking the mob, political connections, and Curry. In spite of the relentlessness of the attacks by the spectator, fear did begin to overtake Molly. She wrote to a friend shortly before her disappearance about the pivotal night of McCabe's attack. Quote, Everything since that night seems terrifying, and not one day since can I say has been a happy one. Everything in life seems to center around that night, and each day brings more sorrow and grief because of that night." End quote. You would never have known that Molly was afraid of anything. But she just matter-of-factly would say, well, if they get me or they, I disappear, whatever. Um, but I, I, I don't think she thought they would, personally, but they did. Mm-hmm. Because of Curry's well-documented connections to the Chicago outfit, a high likelihood of involvement in the beating of Bill McCabe, and his overall looming presence in the community, rumors soon abounded about his role in Molly's disappearance, many of which remain urban legends in Joliet to this day. That's Fran Curry's house, you know, as you went up the street. You know, for a long time, they said that's where Molly's buried, because at that time, they were putting a new cement front porch. Multiple theories about what happened to Molly oh, and yeah. where she's buried. Do you have one? What's your favorite theory about where she might be? Hmm. Not under Curry's front porch. If they needed Rika to do something, if Rika was going to do something in Joliet, Fran Curry would be the liaison. He'd be the guy to say, well, you know what? Uh, the night before printing, she works till midnight. Here's her address. He could set it up. But I don't think him and two Joliet henchmen grabbed her. Definitely would not put him in his front porch. Maybe she was getting closer than she'd ever gotten before. I think she was ready to expose some people. But I, I personally don't think Curry was the one that was responsible. I think it was bigger than that. Curry's seemingly obvious involvement in Molly's disappearance is problematic. Even Curry himself knew fingers would point to him. So much so that the day after Molly disappeared, Curry walked into the Joliet police station and asked if he was a suspect, even agreeing to be interviewed. Most agree, as Lynn stated, Molly's disappearance was much bigger than Francis Curry. Some suggest she was up against some of the biggest forces of the era. In 57, there seemed to be a real intense 
national concern, law enforcement's concern about what the organized crime was doing in the country. Uh, and here you got a situation, almost a perfect situation, scenario, that they could focus on. Uh, you're talking about a newspaper editor, owner, uh, being removed because she was very vocal. And when I say she, I, I, I always include McCabe and the spectator. They were, you know, it all goes together as a package, but they were very vocal against the whole gambling situation and the corruption in town. And she was a perfect example of how a mob controlled the community. And, and they did. As we've discussed this episode, Chicago Outfit Operations had transitioned from prohibition bootlegging to pinballs and jukeboxes to an unsuccessful attempt to infiltrate the Hollywood movie studios. With national attention turning heavily to a nationwide network of organized crime in the 1950s, the mob began its relationship with its most storied ally, organized labor. The opposing forces were represented by two of the most recognizable names of the modern era, and both had direct connections to the Molly Zelko case. Mr. Kennedy, uh, James Reston of the New York Times wrote that one of your problems in New York is to live down the charge that, and these were his words, quote, you are a ruthless and ambitious young man who gets what he wants, no matter who is hurt in the process. What's your answer to those charges, which have, as you probably know, been fairly widespread? I, I suppose, really, in the last analysis, I'm not the best one to ask that question of. I think that those who think I'm ruthless, maybe they be able to document why they think I am. The voice you just heard was Robert F. Kennedy. While history does not remember him for ruthlessness, Kennedy made a name for himself as an ambitious, and at times ruthless, lawmaker and special counsel. One of Kennedy's greatest opponents throughout his political rise was the infamous president of the Teamsters Union, Jimmy Hoffa, who didn't mince words in his assessment of Robert Kennedy. He wasn't a good attorney general. In all probability, a worse senator. I would hate to think what would happen if he became president of the United States. He'd probably have a fascist government. Years before either Kennedy ran for president, Jimmy Hoffa and RFK engaged in several heated exchanges in the McClellan hearings, in which the Kennedy brothers, two fast political up-and-comers at the time, attempted to link the Teamsters Union to organized crime. The Senate Rackets Committee provides the link between James Hoffa Robert Kennedy, the charge of ruthlessness. As committee counsel, Kennedy mercilessly exposes corruption and racketeering in the labor movement. With Hoffa of the Teamsters, it becomes a bitter personal duel, something too personal. If communist unions ever gain a position to exercise influence in the transport lanes of the world, the free world will have suffered a staggering blow. Do you agree with that? No, I don't agree with it because the American worker will never put anybody at the head of unions. That will disrupt the American uh, system. Do you know who made that statement? I don't know and I don't care. Probably Beck would sound like him. Mr. James Riddle Hoffman. I don't believe it. What do you think of that? I don't believe it. What do you think of that? Only a handful of political feuds have reached the level of vitriol, even pettiness, as that of the Kennedys and Jimmy Riddle Hoffa. With televisions appearing in many American households in this era, these broadcasted hearings at times sounded like something out of a modern-day reality show. While leaving the hearings after these people had testified regarding this matter, did you say that SOB I'll break his back? Who? You. After the who? To anyone. Did you make that statement? For whose back were you going to break, Mr. Hoffa? Figure your speech. I don't even know what I was talking about, and I don't know what you're talking about. 
Well, yeah, Mr. Hoffa, all I'm trying to find out, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I'm trying to find out whose back you were going to break. Figure a speech. What? Figure a speech, probably. Figure a speech about what? I don't know. Well, who were you talking about? I have no knowledge of what you're talking about, and I Would don't... you deny that you made the statement? I don't recall making it. you deny that you made it? I could have made a remark to somebody about something we've been talking about the day before or the day after. You could have, but that's a figure of speech. Well, I know it's a figure of speech. Whose back were you going to break? Does it mean physically? <laughs> well, then I, let's find out whose back you were going to well, I don't break know. Uh, figuratively. I don't know. As these audio clips demonstrate... Robert Kennedy was relentless in his pursuit of Hoffa and determined to find a, perhaps literal, smoking gun to link him to the Mafia. This quest would ultimately lead Robert Kennedy to Joliet in search of Molly Zelko. Next time on The Spectator. Well, they're trying to get you, Jimmy. Trying to get you, Jimmy. Jimmy, they're coming after you. Trying to get you, Jimmy. Trying to get you, Jimmy. Every politician and his brother, too. So now you've heard about all the wars fought in the air on sea and soil. But have you heard in the land of the free? There's a war between Hoffa and his enemy. Well, they're trying to get you, Jimmy, trying to get you, Jimmy. Jimmy, they're coming after you. The Spectator is a project of the Joliet Area Historical Museum and the Joliet Public Library. The podcast was produced by me, Greg Pierbolt, along with Joey Lieberman. Interviews were recorded by Keith Folk, head of Joliet Public Library's digital media studio. Thanks to all our interviewees, Lonnie Kane, Lynn Lichtenauer, and Dennis Henrietta. Additional archival audio is an excerpt from the 1970 documentary, The Unfinished Journey of Robert F. Kennedy, retrieved online. Special thank you to Megan Millen, director of the Joliet Public Library. On the coast our land. Well, they're trying to get you, Jimmy. Trying to get you, Jimmy. Jimmy, they're coming after you. Trying to get you, Jimmy. Trying to get you, Jimmy. Every politician and his brother, too.